0: Morning saints. Let's pray. Father, truly, your words are wonderful. And we are grateful for the opportunity to open our Bibles together in these coming minutes. Father, would you make it the case that our ears are opened to hear what we find there, that our our eyes are opened to see. We pray, Father, that, that what we find difficult you would, you would grant us not just to understand, but to believe, that you would overcome our doubt, that we would truly believe what we've just sung, and that is there is nowhere else that we can go for words of life than to come to you. And You are extraordinarily kind to have recorded your word for us in the, word, in the Bible, and, and we pray for your help as we study it. We ask that the Holy Spirit would have His way with us, that He would draw us closer to You, that He would knit our hearts to Christ, that we would be more stalwart in our faith as we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, as you're finding your place there, if you would please stand with me and and I'll read the first 10 verses, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness where a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an and Aaron's staff that budded, and the ta- tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places Is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is a symbol for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You may be seated. There's a clip from a a television show that's made its way around the Internet. The character looks directly at the camera and says, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. The line is, is very popular likely because so many people can identify with it. Most of us, at least those of us with any age on us, can identify with longing for the good old days. Those good old days may represent very different things to different people. Could be the time before a devastating diagnosis, or or maybe it's just the time before you had the, the daily growing evidence that your body is aging could be the days prior to hurting or being hurt by your spouse so severely that things are just different now. It could be a time maybe when money didn't matter, either because you had enough or because you didn't have any, when your kids were younger, when they were close by, when they were incapable of making life-altering mistakes the life that you had before an accident or an incident took from you a loved one. That era before that one seemingly ever-consequential sin wrecked your life. We have pictures of those days. We have pictures of them resting on our mantles and saved on our phones, seared into our memories But the pictures are not enough. They're not enough to actually take us back to those days, to make things like they were. Perhaps no one knows that longing better than Adam and Eve. The good old days were never better than the original good old days prior to Genesis chapter 3. In the original good old days, there was not even the knowledge of, of disease, isolation, loss, evil, sin, death. But in place of all of those things, man only knew, enjoyed, walked with, and imaged God Almighty. It was the definition of paradise. In, in the moments just after choosing, creation over the Creator, everything changed. And the man and the woman, they were cut off from the good old days. Everything about our good old days, we also lost because of that event in Genesis chapter 3. Our illnesses, our, our, our ignorance, our evil and sin, our deaths, our own impending deaths, deaths of, of loved ones, our inability and disinclination to walk with and enjoy God, all of the things that we would say, well, those things have separated us from our good old days. All of those things stem from the very first leaving behind of the original good old days. The but Bible, The Bible contains this consistent message of good news. There, there is... A way to go back, or maybe if if we wanted to be more theologically precise, we, we would say there is a way to go forward to the good new day. Before man and woman even left paradise, God promised that He would send someone to fix everything. And over the centuries recorded in the scriptures, God reiterated and developed that promise until the incarnation of Jesus Christ who ransomed us from sin and death on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father. And and He said on the day before His crucifixion that He was going away to prepare a place for His disciples. And, And He said, I will return and take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. So where is Jesus now? What is He doing? Well, he is, He's preparing a better Eden. He's, he's preparing a good new day for us, where all of these things that plague us, chiefly separation from God, all, all of those things will be no more, and the good old days will pale in comparison to the good new day in and with Christ. And so we wait for His return. And we wait for His return. Life in this world is is not easy and is not kind to those who love the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We suffer as we wait. The temptation that arises due to that suffering is the concern of the book of Hebrews. Toward, toward the end of chapter 10, which we've not considered yet together, toward the end of chapter 10, the author refers to the sufferings that the original recipients had endured because of their faith in Christ. Insults, afflictions, imprisonments, confiscation of their pro- property, all of these things due to their being disciples of the Lord Jesus. And we're not that far removed from all of those experiences as well, even right now in the 21st century in the west there's plenty of ostracism insult affliction whatever due to our following Jesus from the beginning of the church the christian's situation has been hostility from the world and the original readers of this of this book they were under the temptation because of that pressure that comes from being a disciple they were under the temptation to shrink back from faithful discipleship. And humanly speaking, that makes sense. If you're, if you're coming under fire for something, the knee-jerk reaction is to, to stop whatever it is that's drawing that heat. Shrinking back from faithful discipleship. It can, take a, it can take on a number of different forms according to the book of Hebrews. It may take the form of waning zeal for the mission of the church. Could be people pulling away from meaningful involvement with other believers. Further still, th- th- there may be this, this growing laxity in, in personal devotions. People cease to regard even interaction with God in Christ as essential to their daily well being. And, and, and eventually, shrinking back from faithful discipleship can entail entrenchment in sin, where, where people tolerate. Habitual ungodliness in their own lives. And, and then the very end of this road of shrinking back is apostasy. It's turning away from the faith. A Lack of zeal, pulling away from the church, retreat from personal, personal devotion, entrenchment in sin. All of these things make us susceptible to the deception of sin, which seeks to make plausible the idea of walking away from Jesus, who just happens to be the one who has promised to take us to a better day. For the original audience, the temptation was to revert to Judaism. Perhaps Judaism could bring them back to the good old days or maybe take them to a better day, a better day without all of this trouble that comes from being a follower of Christ. We may be tempted to to find a different avenue other than than Judaism. There could be any number of avenues that that we might seek to avoid the difficulty of discipleship and to find something like a better day. Perhaps we would turn to, like many others have and are doing, even as we sit here this morning, we might be tempted to turn to a brand of pseudo-Christianity that that tries to retain all the God-speak while rejecting the authority of God's Word. And that avenue, we're tempted to think, perhaps that avenue will allow us to appease the culture while retaining some semblance of an intact conscience. Maybe maybe that kind of pseudo-Christianity can take us from this difficult day to a better day. Others of us may be tempted to retain biblical Christianity in appearance while rejecting it in private practice, that is, Perhaps some of us are are tempted to to come to church all the time and and, and play the part on Sundays, but the rest of the time, particularly when we're interacting with the lost culture, we do everything that we can to just blend in, to live like these are the good old days rather than to anticipate a better day coming in Christ. And, And those of us who are tempted in that direction and who... And to begin to go down that road, it, we're, we're living something like a spiritual double life. The people who know us at church, they would, they would be shocked to see our manner of life outside this building. And those who see us all during the week, they would be shocked to see our manner of life inside this building. Still others may be tempted to consider another worldview altogether, whether whether it's a man of manufactured product of, of other men in the form of a of a political philosophy, or a false religion, or feigned agnosticism. In other words, we follow the crowd in their avenue, or maybe we find our own way altogether. We formulate for ourselves an inevitably flawed understanding of how all things work. So again, for the original audience, the tug was back to Judaism. For us, it may be any number of things by which we seek to go to a better day and to get out from under the difficulties of this life lived as faithful disciples. So the author of Hebrews seeks to reestablish that the Christian's foundation is Christ, who is the com- culminating fulfillment of all God's saving intention. He's the only one who can take us to paradise. And the, the author couples that Re-establishing of Christ as our foundation. He couples that with periodic warnings about what, we'll do, what will happen if we do walk away from Jesus. Back in Hebrews 2.1, you may remember that the author referring to the gospel of Jesus, he said, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And he goes on there in chapter 2 to say, If, if those who rejected the law of Moses received judgment... How much worse if we neglect so great a salvation in Christ. And He repeatedly puts Jesus next to these Old Testament institutions showing not just that Jesus is better, but why He's better. Jesus is better than all of these these Old Testament institutions because these things served as mere pictures of God's desire to save us and return us to fellowship with Him in Christ. So we find ourselves right in the middle of of the heart of the book, which is chapters 7 through 10. It's the heart of this theological argument that Jesus is God's singular answer to man's exile from His presence. Old covenant institutions, they pointed to Him. In themselves, they utterly fail to bring us to God. Thus, God has made a new covenant in Christ's blood. The new covenant in Christ's blood actually does what the Old Covenant merely pictured. So we've just read chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and here the author, continuing with his argument that Jesus is better and why, he shows the insufficiency of the Old Covenant tabernacle. And by, by extension, he shows the insufficiency of anything outside of Christ to bring us to a better day. To go back to Judaism or to go to any other avenue is to settle for pictures that leave the good old days old and past. To return to any of, the, any of those things outside of Christ is to turn away from the good new day yet future. Now look with me, just scan through those opening verses of chapter 9 again one reminds us that the Old Covenant, it did have regulations for worship and there was an earthly place of, of holiness there. And the author begins to rehearse all of these details. So the tabernacle was a tent and it had two sections. The first section was called the Holy Place. And there were implements of worship there, the lampstand, the table, the, the bread of the presence. But there was a, a, a second section further into the tabernacle called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And the text tells us that that section contained the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant with all the things inside it. Those of you who are well familiar with the Old Testament, you have a hard time going past what I've just said. So let, let me just give you a quick aside. We considered the tabernacle, how it functioned, all of its implements when we were in Leviticus last year and earlier this year. We also considered it when we were in Exodus in 2016 and 2017. One of the big conundrums that we find in the book of Hebrews is that the author's depiction here of the tabernacle does not perfectly coincide with the descriptions of these things in the Old Testament. Specifically, he says that the altar of incense was in the second section, the holy of holies. The Old Testament repeatedly places the altar of incense in the holy place, that that first section. And so some skeptics would say, aha, insurmountable proof that the Bible has errors in it. Some believers, reading the same passage, would say, oh no, maybe this is the beginning of the end of inerrancy. Let me just remind you that the author of Hebrews demonstrates a mastery of the Old Testament that is utterly unparalleled in history. I would suggest that there's no one who has ever known the Old Testament like the author of Hebrews. It is simply not possible that this man did not know where the altar of incense was. That, that, is, that stretched the bounds of credulity to the breaking point. I cannot go there. And neither can anyone else who honestly reads the book of Hebrews. And when we remember what that altar was for, what the altar of incense did, what its function was, it opens up for us explanations of, of what the author is thinking and what he has written. You may remember from, from Leviticus, further back from Exodus, that the altar of incense was in the, in the holy place. But on the day of atonement, incense from that altar was taken into the second section, into the holy of holies to cover the high priest's entry until he could sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And based upon that, based upon the function of that altar, one, one scholar writes this, So vital was the burning of incense on the Day of Atonement that the author automatically associates the altar of incense with the Holy of Holies. In other words, what the altar of incense was for was about what happened in the Holy of Holies. And further, the word that's used here for altar is the same word that is used in the Greek Old Testament, not for the altar of incense, but for the censer that carried that incense into the Holy of Holies. And so, because of these two things, I find it more plausible to say that the the author associates the altar of incense with the presence of God in the Holy of Holies because of its function. I find that far more plausible than to say that he was mistaken about where it sat. At any rate, the tabernacle had two sections, and look at the second part of Hebrews 9.5 with me. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, these sections, their contents, everything that was done in there, not the point that the author is trying to make. Exactly how these things functioned and what they did. It's not the point that he's trying to make. The point that he's going to draw out here is that the tabernacle was not enough. Its regulations were not enough to bring man to a better day. And there's three reasons for that. The first is this. The old covenant tabernacle was not enough because it provided limited access. It provided limited access God Look with me again at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, in other words, these two sections with all their implements, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Now keep in mind, Okay? Keep in mind this, this theological idea that we tend to cling very closely to here at Providence, which is that the whole point of human existence is knowing and serving God in loving fellowship. That was the good old days, and it's, it's the good new day to which we're looking forward to. Knowing and loving God in loving, perfect fellowship. That's, that's what human existence is all about. Keep that in mind, okay? So first, let's remember where God's presence was manifested in relation to the tabernacle. Listen to Exodus 25, 22. This is Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony. That's the Ark of the Covenant. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. There I will meet you. That's the Lord talking to Moses about the Holy of Holies. The mercy seat, which was the covering over the the Ark of the Covenant, that's in the Holy of Holies. That was like the throne of God on earth in the tabernacle. The second section, the Holy of Holies. That's where God is. The author of, of Hebrews has designated that the intersection or the second section. Now look again at the middle of Hebrews 9.6. The priests go regularly into the first section. They go into the first section, not the section where there can be interaction with God. And between these two sections, there's a huge curtain. It's so thick and heavy that, it, that it's like a wall between the priest and God when they go in to do those duties. And those duties include things like placing the bread on the, 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 the table of the presence and, and, and tending to the lampstand. And the the emphasis here is that that this, going into that, that initial section where God isn't, that's their normal, all-the-time work. When they go into the tabernacle, they go into the part where He isn't. And, and notice... Notice that it's specifically the priests who go into that section. It's clear from the Pentateuch. and We saw this in, in Leviticus. The priests only go into the tabernacle. The priests represent the people before God. The priests are like intermediaries between the people and the Lord. So only they can enter the tabernacle's first section. They alone have been ritually consecrated for that work If you you want to take notes and and check this out, you can can go back to Leviticus 8, and you'll find the priests alone being consecrated for this work. And so we may think, well, we're kind of all about representation around here. We've got representation in in the government at various levels, and so at least the people had representation before God, and that's kind of cool. Would you think that about a vacation in Hawaii Or, or a trip to the moon? Have you ever been to the moon? Well, yeah, I mean, k- kind of. I mean, through, through Neil Armstrong, he went, and I've, I've heard him talk about it on the Internet. So, yeah, I've been to the moon. Is that how that works? Would you be satisfied with that? Somebody offers you a trip to the moon, and, the, and, and you say, oh, I'm all about it, and they give you a video of Neil Armstrong talking about it. That satisfy you? When was the last time you put Facebook pictures of your by proxy trip to Hawaii? Have You ever done that? because people would think you're a fool and you would be because that's not satisfying at all we envy other people going to Hawaii we don't brag about it on the internet because it's not the same it's not enough and and those two examples that I just gave you even that is better than what this is because entering God's presence is the greatest of blessed joys and the priests aren't even doing that on behalf of the people, so you've got a representative representative in in the tabernacle. That represent, representative isn't even going in all the way. Even your representative isn't going to Hawaii. They're only in the first section, and that's completely unsatisfying. It's not enough. Look at verse seven. But into the second. Only the high priest goes and and he but once a year. So someone does go into the Holy of Holies, the second section. One person goes, the high priest, and he's in and out. One person, once per year, even the high priest could only go in on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16.2, listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. In other words, for anyone other than the high priest to go in at any time or for the high priest to go in at the wrong time, it's bad, bad news. And this is the extent to the face-to-face interaction that God's chosen people had with God on the regular under the Old Testament tabernacle system. One person, once per year, just long enough to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Now, close your eyes for just a second and and compare that with Eden. Both a man and woman, who were the population of the world at the time, they were face to face, walking with God all day, every day. You can open your eyes. This setup that we that we read about here in Hebrews nine, echoing the Old Testament, it hints at a resolution to man's problem, while leaving man with this deep sense that this in itself is not enough. One person entering God's presence for a few minutes per year. It's not enough. This is not a return to the good old days, and it's definitely not a new, better day. How do you think your your marriage would do if you interacted only by proxy? You never saw your spouse face to face. Never. But you could send a representative be in the same general space with them for a few minutes a year. It's not a recipe for flourishing fellowship. And we have an inherent need to be with God that is far greater than our need to be with our loved ones. We can't function in accordance with our design as humans separated from God. The Old Covenant offered representation before God, one person, once per year, Everything about the Old Covenant tabernacle screams limited access to God. That's a reason that it it was not enough. A second reason the Old old Covenant tabernacle was not enough is because it provided inadequate offerings. Inadequate offerings. Verse 7 again. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. First of all, notice that the entire work of the high priest on that day revolves around dealing with sin. I know that some of us may feel like, we may feel like in our relationship with our our family members, perhaps our, 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 our close friends, we may feel like we do nothing but reconcile conflict. We may feel that way. But the Holy of Holies was exactly that. It was exactly about just dealing with sin. The high priest entered strictly to make an offering for sin, his own and those of the people. And, and he, he has to take in coals from the altar and incense from the altar of incense, both of those things to, to provide a fragrant aroma which shields him from wrath until he's able to go back out and get the blood of a bull and a goat and sprinkle it on the ark. And that's it. Making atonement for sin was the extent of that interaction. Now, there were other offerings outside the tabernacle that pictured fellowship with God, but that's all they did. They pictured it. They, they, they symbolized it. But there was no regular enjoyment of true face-to-face fellowship with God in the tabernacle. The face-to-face interaction that one person had once a year for a few minutes was strictly to deal with sin. And, and not even all sins. I mean, th- this is the most crucial piece of this. Not even all sins. The blood provided atonement for unintentional sins. Th- th- these are sins committed in ignorance. Like, like this is an example given in, in, in the, 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 those chapters of, of Leviticus. Accidentally providing false testimony, accidentally. In other words, not intentional deception, but just getting the facts wrong, mistaking the facts, and then, and then testifying to those misunderstood facts. That's the kind of thing that this blood atoned for. Defiant sins, the things that we would actually think of as, as wrongs, things committed in the full knowledge of the rebellion they represent, there was no sacrifice for those, no forgiveness for those. And depending upon the nature of those sins that were not covered, the recompense was either death or banishment. Lying, coveting, adultery, theft, blasphemy, dishonoring parents, no sacrifice, no forgiveness. Jump down to the middle of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. These sacrifices offered under the Old Covenant in that tabernacle, they left the conscience defiled. That, that, that simply means those sacrifices left you guilty and that's a huge problem because, remember, sin is what led to man being cast out of God's presence in the first place. Sin is what made the good old days the good old days. So a sacrifice that leaves you guilty, that, that, that leaves a wall between you and God, is, is the definition of not enough. Because let, let's, let's, let's all be honest. I'll, I'll be transparent with you. And I'm assuming that I'm not alone in this. I don't have a laundry list of exclusively unintentional sins on my rap sheet. In fact, I'm not aware of a single one. Would you ask me what, what unintentional sins have you could? I can't think of one. I can think of plenty of the other kind. And those are the kind that that, that keep you up at night, especially when we consider Jesus' understanding of. The spirit of the law. You remember that back in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus was saying things like lust is committing adultery in in the heart. and Anger is committing murder in the heart. And when we read the law the way that the Lord Jesus did, we recognize that humanity is a horde of lying, thieving, murderous adulterers. None of that is covered by the blood of bulls and goats the regulations of the law addressed far simpler superficial things like what food you can eat and what to do if you accidentally eat what you can't how to be ceremonially clean regulations for the body not a soul blackened by the guilt of high-handed sin and the author notes that that, that this was the only game in town, until a time of reform, he notes. He's referring to the fact that all this was temporary. It was intended to be remedied. And and he'll get to that in verses 11 and following, which we'll consider next week, Lord willing. But for now, the obvious truth is that these Old Testament regulations, functioning exactly the way they were designed, they provided inadequate offerings. They left people guilty which is the whole problem. You cannot go into God's presence without the removal of guilt. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant tabernacle were not enough. And so, third, the Old Covenant was not enough because it left the way to God unopened. It left the way to God unopened. Verses 8 and 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates. By what? Well, by the workings of the tabernacle that he's just described. By the first section and the second section working together to reveal limited access to God and inadequate sacrifices the Holy Spirit is teaching something the Holy Spirit who inspired the recording of all of these things in the Old Testament he's teaching that the way into the into the holy places is not yet opened. while the first section is operational nobody could go into the holy of holies while it's still time to go only into the holy place the entrance of the priests every day into that first section was a daily reminder. It is not the day for the high priest to go into the second section. It is not the day for anyone to go into the, the very presence of God. And He says that this is symbolic for the present time. He means that this, this pictures something else. Remember that back in chapter 8, he said that the earthly tabernacle was, was based upon the pattern in heaven. Remember that? And the true inner chamber, the true Holy of Holies, is in heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That's the real Holy of Holies. And the existence of the earthly tabernacle as the only way to approach God in the Old Testament indicated that it was not yet time for anyone to actually enter God's presence in the true Holy of Holies in heaven. While while the, the earthly tabernacle was standing and functioning... Limited access to God and inadequate sacrifices was all that was available. But this age, the age where we live, the church age, the age of Christ, is the era of entering into God's presence. And so so this third point is actually the main point made by the first two. The Old Covenant tabernacle, it offered limited access to God. It provided insufficient sacrifices. Therefore, it left the way to God closed. The very existence of the tabernacle signaled there is no way for you to enter God's presence through this place. So if you want to, just th- th- think about the original concern then. The original concern of, of the, the first recipients and by extension us. The original concern of this letter is that it is hard to be a Christian. The world is unkind. It brings all, all kinds of severities and difficulties into the life of a believer. And so the temptation is, I'm going to find another way. I'm going to find another way to a better day. And for the original recipients, it was to Judaism, to go back to these old covenant things, to go back to the tabernacle form of worship. And listen, if you want to live under the regulations of the old covenant tabernacle, you will never enter God's presence. To, to turn back to that is to live in a state between the good old days of Eden and the coming better day of the new Eden. It's to live in between those. You'll never go back to the former, and you will not enter the latter. There will be only judgment for you if you turn from Jesus back to this old system. And again, likely we are not doing that specifically. We are not trying to revert to Judaism. And so perhaps we might think, oh, this doesn't really even apply to me. Not so. Because think about this. For the person seeking to substitute something other than Judaism for following Christ, the picture is actually worse. It's worse than going back to Judaism. The, the, The Old Covenant, at least that was given by God. It was designed it was designed to be ineffective for bringing people back to Eden so that the people would seek fulfillment in Christ. Paul calls the law in, in all of its implements calls the law a tutor leading people to Christ. You can't say that about whatever you may be tempted to find in lieu of discipleship to Jesus so these these options that I mentioned earlier this morning for Something like maybe a a more culture-friendly, Bible-less, pseudo-Christianity. If you're tempted towards something like that, listen to how Paul describes those kinds of people in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, again, he's talking about people who profess to be believers. He says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those are the people who want to substitute A pseudo-Christianity for actual faithful discipleship to Jesus Christ. And and the person who says, I'll claim the name of Jesus without the faithful discipleship and without the self-denial that tends to, to draw the hatred of the world, Paul calls that person disqualified. Which means not entering the coming new, better day good old days for those kinds of people will remain in the past. They will not enter paradise. They have no sacrifice. They have no access to God. Some people, again, are, are tempted to go a little bit further, ab- abandon Christianity completely, and, and, and try a, another philosophical system or political persuasion, false religion, agnosticism, maybe their own brand of faith in something, whatever that might be, Those things don't even offer limited access to God. At least Judaism, for a time, offered limited access. All these other avenues, they offer nothing. They they don't even offer limited access. They don't even offer inadequate offerings. Those things offer no access. They offer no offerings. Nothing that can lead to eternal paradise with the Godhead. In fact, they do the exact opposite. They lead away from God in Christ. Jesus alone provided a once-for-all sacrifice that allows a person to be reconciled with God and spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything else is utterly not enough. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we... Drift away from it. We must press on and we must press in to zeal for the gospel. Meaningful relationships in the local church. Depth in our devotional lives. Eradication of sin. And utter rejection of the notion that anything other than Jesus could be enough. To bring us to a better day. You may need help with some of these things. You may need help finding relationships in the church. Maybe you need help going, help going deeper into your devotions, or or, or, or reclaiming a, a zeal for the gospel. Maybe you need help eradicating a sin habit in your life. Maybe you need help with one of these manifestations of. Drifting away from faithful discipleship to Jesus Christ. If that's the case, please get on our website on the signups page and put in a request for a coffee with a counselor. We will get you set up with somebody who can walk you through any one of these things that you might cling to Jesus and not stray from him unto your own eternal demise. Perhaps you need somebody to talk to today. We're available. We would love to talk to you. You could talk to me. You could talk to any of the other elders. In fact, you're surrounded by people who could answer questions and would love to do so. Don't leave today without either talking to someone or making an appointment. We would love to help you. In in the coming minutes, after I pray, we'll observe a few brief moments of silent reflection. May the Holy Spirit prompt you regarding what you are to do with the things that we've heard this morning. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for the clarity of your word and how the author of Hebrews is, is using example after example after example to show us that... The things outside of Christ through which we might seek some kind of a fulfillment or better day or reconciliation to you, all of them are not enough. We thank you for that clarity. And now we pray that your Holy Spirit would convince every one of us that it's true. This is true. And Father, would you please open our eyes to ways that we might not even be aware of that we are being tempted to stray to things other than Jesus. Please open our eyes to these things. Convict us of them. Even, even if we, our eyes are opened to the, to the idea that we're just on, in the very early stages of, of, of doubting or turning away from Jesus, help us to see that as an absolute necessity to get help. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that Jesus is over abundantly more than what we need. Grant us, Father, to cling to Him. We pray in His name. Amen.